If you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. You read, you heard Carrie read the passage earlier. Uh, Mark chapter 9. We're actually going to be working from uh, verse 33 and following. But just so you'll know, and, and I'm going to say this again, I'm sure. Um, the whole of chapter 9 is Jesus laying some groundwork to prepare his disciples for what was coming to them and at them once he left. He was preparing them for what they would face, and he was discipling them in the whole of chapter 9. I titled this sermon today, True Greatness Part 2. True Greatness Part 2. I'm going to reach back and grab some things from last week and pull them forward. Um, and so you can see how the two will tie together. True Greatness Part 2. As I studied this passage this week and went back and looked at everything in context, two words dropped in my spirit. The words don't actually appear in the text but they're strongly inferred in this entire passage. And the two words are humility and pride. Humility and pride. Hmm. How many of you know that we are citizens in the kingdom of God? I, I want to serve notice on you today that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two different things. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is prepared for us. That's the, that's, that is the, the place where God dwells. We can touch heaven from earth as we pray in the spirit and learn how to tap into the spirit realm. That, was, that must have been the Lord telling me not to get too far on this side over there. As we tap into the spirit realm, this, the kingdom of God is right here, right now. It is what we are a part of. It is what we are connected to as followers of Jesus Christ. The moment we surrendered our life to the lordship of Jesus, we entered into the family of God as children of God, and we entered into the kingdom of God as citizens of his kingdom. The kingdom of God is God's way, his method, his systems of doing things in this earth realm. That's what the kingdom of God is. And he uses us as our hands and feet in this realm to expand his kingdom. Pretty clear on that? The key to experiencing greatness in the kingdom of God is found in humility. In humility. Let me give you a working definition of humility this morning. Humility, and by the way, let me stop for a second. How many of you got the handouts that I gave? Is there anybody missing a handout? Who, if who needs a handout, uh, you guys need one? It, okay, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in just a minute, and then I'm going to have uh, Ron and, and a couple of the guys give you those handouts because I don't want you to miss taking these notes. I think they'll serve you well. Let me give you a working definition of humility. Who needs one? Keep your hand up. Raise your hand real high. There you go. Humility is a life and attitude that reflects absolute dependence on God in all things. 
Humility is a life and attitude that reflects absolute dependence on God in all things. St. Augustine said this about humility. He says, if you would rise, you had better start descending. If you're going to build a tower that will pierce the clouds, you must first build the foundation of humility. Dr. Crawford Larissa, Fellowship Bible Church, one of my absolute favorite Bible teachers on this planet, says this about humility. He says, humility is the cornerstone and foundation of Christianity. There is no godly character apart from humility. All the virtues of the Christian life are based upon humility. Those are his words. The key to experiencing greatness and richness found in the kingdom of God is found in humility. The entire Christian life is a struggle between pride and humility. Every single day of our lives, we have to make conscious and unconscious decisions that either fuel our pride or deepen our humility. Hmm. Let me give you a biblical definition of pride. Biblical definition of pride. <laughs> it's really simple. Here it is. Pride is the one thing that God resists. Pride is the one thing that God resists. Listen, there are so many passages in Scripture. Pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. There's a place in Proverbs that says that there are six things that God hates and seven that are abomination to him. And at the top of that list is a proud look. God, God resists the proud. That word resist is not like, you know, standing here with a shield, like God is standing here saying, I'm going to resist you, pride. No, that word resist here in the Greek means that when God sees pride, he goes after it. He attacks it to get rid of it. Humility and pride are diametrically opposed to each other. And we cannot experience the richness and the greatness that God has in store for us in his kingdom as his citizens when we have pride in our lives. God goes after it every time he sees it. Now, pride is not always brazen. It's not always in your face. Often pride is subtle. Sometimes it's elusive. You don't even know that it's there. Pride is sinister at times. You can't see it. You can't feel it. Others that are close to you can't even recognize it in you sometimes. And then there's one day that the right environment presents and the right circumstances occur and pride rears its ugly head and exposes itself for what it truly is. Happens. We all struggle with pride in one form or another and in varying degrees. And any person that says, I don't have a pride issue, uh, that person is not self-aware. There's pride in all of us. Even the best of us struggle with it. Now, there are some people that say, Greg, you know, I don't think that, you know, uh, that, that I don't have, that I have pride in my life. Yeah, you do. As a matter of fact, turn to the person next to you right now and say, yeah, you do. Come on. Yeah, you do. 
Mm-hmm. Don't fool yourself, man. Our culture, listen, our culture is saturated with things that fill our need for personal recognition. Let me just give you a couple of examples. How many of you have a Facebook page? Facebook page. Your Facebook page is all about you. Mm-hmm. How many friends I have on your Facebook page? Let me ask you this. What kind of phone you have? How many iPhones in the house? Come on, raise your hands real high, iPhones. iPhones. That whole world in that iPhone is all about you. Come on now. Twitter, Instagram, what else out there new? I don't know. I know there's some stuff that's out there not. Snapshots, what else? What I say, snap, what is it? Why are y'all laughing at me today? Okay, Snapchat, all right? <laughs> My point is that our culture is saturated with things that, that fill our need for personal recognition. Here's a question for you. Do I want to be great by the standards of this world or do I want to be great in the kingdom of God? Because sooner or later, we all have to answer this question. Is my life about me or is my life about service in the kingdom of God? Here's my point. Every day of our lives, we have to make a decision. Am I going to seek recognition for myself or am I going to seek opportunities to glorify God? That's the, that's the idea of Mark chapter 9 here is Jesus is teaching his disciples about greatness and he sets the table for them because he knows that he's about to leave. Jesus is saying, man, I'm about to get out of here, you guys. I'm about to check out. And listen, he's leaving the fate of the future church in the hands of 12 men. I want you to get it right. You, you got to get this thing right, man. Twelve men. If you and I want to experience the richness and the greatness that God has in store for us as citizens of, king, of the kingdom of God, there are three things, three keys in this text that I think that we need to learn. Here's the first. I used this last week. I modified it a bit. The first thing we need to do and learn is we need, to, we need to learn to pursue childlike humility. Remember the disciples last, last week, they were, they were on their way, last week. I, you know, when, it's funny because when, when I'm teaching the scripture, it's like I jump into the story with them. So I was with those guys last week. But a couple of weeks ago when I taught on this passage, the disciples, they were making their journey, their trek through, or from Caesarea Philippi around Galilee because Jesus didn't want to go through Galilee because there would have been too many distractions. And they were making their way to Capernaum. And the whole way that they journeyed, they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. They were in pursuit to fulfill their own personal interests. About, the, about three weeks ago, I don't know where this came from. I, I, I almost played the song for you today, but I, I didn't want you guys to think that I wasn't holy. <laughs> I stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, by the way. 
But there's a song that, that came out on my birthday in 1985 by, by a group. I think they may have only had one album, man. It's a group called Tears for Fears. How many of you remember Tears for Fears? <laughs> Tears for Fears. I don't know what happened to them, man. But Tears for Fears, they came out with this album that had Shout on it. You know, that was a bad album. And they had this song on there, multi-platinum song in three different nations. Everybody wants to rule the world. It's my own desire. It's the second verse. It's my own remorse. Help me to decide. Help me to make the most. Help me to. I've got to sing it now. Help me to make the most of freedom. And of pleasure, because nothing ever lasts forever. Everybody wants to rule the world. That was written in 1985. 2,000 years ago, the disciples are walking with Jesus, arguing about who was going to rule the world. Think about it, man. These, these cats knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew he was the Messiah. He was a long-awaited prophesied Messiah. Jesus had handpicked these 12 guys. And you know that when they was talking to each other, they were like Peter, James, and John. It was like, man, you know, we, we Jesus is three. So I don't know what Nate and Thad and Bart are going to do, but, uh, you know, it's going to be between the three of us. I could see them having that conversation. 2,000 years ago, who's going to be the greatest? Notice here, Jesus never answers their question about who's going to be the greatest. Here's what he does. He simply grabs a child, and he sits the child right in the middle of these grown men in Middle Eastern culture. And remember, I want to remind you, in Middle Eastern culture, a child had no rights. None. They were considered completely insignificant. And so Jesus takes this Woo! Holy Spirit's on this side, too. <laughs> Jesus takes this child and he sits them in the middle of these grown men. Little boy, probably seven, eight years old. And, he, and I can imagine that this little boy sitting in the middle of these disciples and he's knowing that he's okay because he's with Jesus. He's sitting there and he tells these men, you want to be great? You really want to be great in the kingdom of God? You really want to be great in the kingdom of God? You got to be like this child. No rights, no reputation to hold up. Don't have his own will, doing the will of his parents. No agenda to try to satisfy. Totally childlike. As a matter of fact, you can't even get the best that my kingdom has to offer if you don't come into my kingdom as a child. Remember that? So Jesus sets this little boy down in the middle of, the, of these guys. And I want you to notice, I, I said childlike. Jesus said childlike, not childish. And here's the difference. The disciples were acting very childish. It's all about themselves. Wanting to have their way. Concerned about who was going to be the greatest. That's childishness, not Childlikeness. True humility, family, is found in childlikeness. Here's what I don't want you to miss. 
These men have been given a, a platform. They've been chosen by Jesus. You talk about the ultimate setup. These guys have been set up. These men have been selected to be the leaders of the New Testament church and given the greatest platform ever. The platform was given to them for them to glorify God and to empower others. And they were already arguing about who would be number one. And Jesus says, stop it. It can't be about you. It's never just about you. It's always about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. I'm going to say this, and this, this, is, this is hard, man, but, but here we go. The only reason why God gives people a platform is to glorify himself and so that we can empower others. That's the only reason. That's what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to have Christ-like humility. Paul writes for us in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, everybody say humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only, not only, not only look on his own interest. Now, it doesn't say here that you can't look on your own interest. It says don't just look only on your own interest. It's okay to have self-interest as long as the motivation of your mind and heart is right. So let each one not look only on his own interest, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Any other use of the platform that God gives us in his authority, that God provides us with in his authority, will lead to pride and arrogance. We have to be careful to honor God and to glorify God with any position of authority that God gives us, be it in the church or be it in the secular world. Man, sitting down with those guys yesterday, man, was amazing. The platform that Junior has to reach lives for the kingdom of God is amazing. The platform that Malcolm has and Ryan has and Zach has, all these guys sitting at these tables, totally different platforms from totally different walks of life, all given to them by God to influence the kingdom. God empowered them to influence the kingdom. And here's what we have to be careful of. No matter what walk of life we're in, all authority is God-given. So everybody say all. All authority is God-given, and we should never get to the place where we abuse the spiritual authority that God gives us. You guys tracking with me? Brings me to my next point. You want to be great in God's kingdom? You have to first pursue childlike humility, and the second thing you want to experience the richness and the greatness of God's kingdom, we have to be careful how we treat each other in the kingdom. Look at what Mark, verse 42 of chapter 9 says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. That word sin here is a very unusual use of a Greek word. Some translators and some versions use the word stumble. If you cause one of my little ones to stumble. 
But the transliteration of the word here is scandalizo. And it's where we get our word scandal or scandalize from. And so in the context that Jesus uses this term, he's using it in the context of how we treat innocent, defenseless children. Man, 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 man. It doesn't matter if you just follow, started following Jesus five minutes ago or you've been following Jesus for 50 years. In the scope of eternity, we are all children of God. You with me? It doesn't matter. And Jesus says when we deal with each other, we got to be watchful. The idea is entrapment here. Don't use your power and your influence and your spiritual position, even your spiritual authority to manipulate my children. That's what's going on here. And again, when we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, we become not only sons and daughters of the kingdom, but we become heirs and joiners. We become citizens of the kingdom of God. We are his citizens, and that means that he's our king, and our king promises to take care of us and watch over us and protect us and not let anyone, even in the church, mess with us. As a matter of fact, he says this. He says, listen, it's better for you to have a millstone, a great millstone tied about your neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea than for you to offend, even offend, cause one of my little ones to sin. It's better for you to do that. It's better for you if that happens. Here's what that looks like. In, in, in Middle Eastern culture, back in the time of Jesus, there, were, there was two different kinds of millstones. There was a, the kind that the, that the women would use to grind the meal, and then there was another kind that, that was used that, um, that was a heavier stone. It's a great stone that was pulled by, by some animal, maybe whether it's a donkey or a cow or an ox or something. It was pulled and, and, and it would crush the grain underneath the rock. That's the kind of stone that Jesus is talking about. He said, it is better for you to have one of these great stones, heavy, you can't even pick it up, to be tied around your neck and be tossed into the sea and drowned than for you to offend any one of my least ones. Now, there are some passages of scripture, man, that don't need any interpretation. There are some passages of scripture I believe are there to scare us to the reality of what it means to love and care and watch out for and be careful of how we treat each other. Man, I know that's hard. You guys still with me? Amen. Remember, Jesus is talking to his 12, man. He's issuing them a stern warning. I'm placing my children in your care. Don't abuse the power that I've given you. Don't abuse the authority that I'm giving you. And I want to go back and recover something I just said before. Remember, the only reason God places the power, empowers his people, and gives us authority so that we can glorify himself and empower others. That's the reason. So we should never use our spiritual authority by way of abusing someone else's trust when God has entrusted them to our care. Maybe you're in a position today where there's someone who has authority over you that's making your life miserable. Hopefully it's not in this church because that would be me. 
But maybe you're in a position where someone who calls himself a Christian is making your life miserable. Or maybe you're finding yourself in a position on your job where you're working for people in the secular world and you're under their authority and you know what the scripture says, that all authority is God-given. Therefore, they've been given authority over you and you have to surrender to that authority. But man, that thing is, that thing is, that thing is like eating you up. What's God saying to you about that? What's God saying to you about that? Because remember, God allows circumstances in our lives often to go after a pride issue that's there. What's God saying to you about that? That makes sense? For some of us, it's just a matter of waiting on God to see what God is going to do, waiting in prayer and surrendering that to God. Other times, it is God at work wanting to reveal something that's in you that he wants to get out of you. Brings me to my final point. And I need to, I need to pre-warn those of you who have children here. Um, I'm going to be showing some images that are pretty graphic here. So if you have children, I'm going to give you, you know, about a minute or so to step out. I mean, it's not like provocative or anything like that, but it is pretty graphic. And the Holy Spirit gave this, this illustration to me to, to drive a point home with the seriousness of this. If you want to be great and experience greatness in the kingdom of God, we must protect our heart against spiritual offense. Against the spirit of offense. I see some people going out. That's good, thank you. Okay, read verse 43. Go to verse 43 with me. Chapter 9. Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into, into hell where their worm dies not or does not die and the fire is not quenched. There are three variations of hell I want to give you right here. Here's the first. The first word translated hell is really a, is, is Gehenna. It is an actual place. It's a real geographical place. Uh, it's called the Valley of Hinnom. It's a deep valley on the south side of Jerusalem. And it was a site where back in the Old Testament, there was some idol worship that took place. Some idolatrous Jews offered child sacrifices to the god Moloch, the idol god Moloch. And then afterward, what, what happens was this valley became a refuse for the city, it became a dump site. It became a sewage site where they dumped live sewage and human waste. It became a place for dead bodies of animals, and it became a place where they would dump dead criminals who they had killed. And so you can imagine it became a place that became synonymous with all kinds of filth and disease, and they would try to burn it out. 
And so there would be fires that would, that would, that would be uh, burning consistently and constantly in this place, and the smoke was horrible. And you'd walk up to maybe deposit your trash or your human waste, and there would be, there would be uh, dead carcasses with maggots coming out of them. And the, and, the, and the carcass would be on fire, and the maggots would be like squirming in the fire. I know it's graphic. Somebody say, ooh, Pastor. But it's a real place. It was a real place. Hmm. It became, over time, a place where the image associated with it was everlasting destruction and punishment. Here's a second. There's a real hell. There's a hell, the real hell that is reserved for everlasting punishment for Satan and his angels, but also for those who reject the saving grace of Jesus Christ and reject God. It is a real place. And our mission is to get as many people as we can to go to heaven and not wind up there. Because it's real and it's everlasting. It's darkness there. Satan is there. Hmm. But here's the third. Do you realize when you choose to live in a fence, you choose to live in a living hell? Satan lives in our offenses. As a matter of fact, he's the chief offender. And so when you choose to live in a fence, you're choosing to live with him in a living hell. Gehenna is a real place. Hell is a real place. Offense is a real place. It's a living hell. When you live in a fence, when you and I live in a fence, it's like an unquenchable fire that burns hot in us that we can never get rid of. It just continues to burn. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It's like worms eating you up physically that just won't stop, won't stop, won't stop until every last spiritual thing in you is consumed. I believe metaphorically this may be what Jesus was talking about as well. So here's a strong warning here. All the kids out here? Hmm. I think so. Okay, yeah, it's, it's just it's images that you're going to see. Now, it's not so much the words. I won't be cussing or nothing, just so you know. Okay. All right. Spiritually, I want you to get this picture. When we live in a fence, spiritually, we are infested like this. Spiritually. Put the first picture up, Regina. That is a worm. I believe it's a guinea worm. You, you see how that's around in that person's foot? That's a live thing. If your foot offends you, if you're in living in a fence, Jesus said, maybe you might have to do something drastic. It's better for you to cut your foot off than to continue to live in offense and have that offense drag your whole body and soul into hell. Show the next one. 
That's an eye. That, that's a roundworm in that person's eye. And it moves around too, for real. Man, listen, listen to me, listen to me, listen, get this, man, get this. When we live in a fence, Jesus said, if you're living in a fence and you're, and you're offended by that offense, if, if, if you're seeing stuff that you ought not be seeing, if your eye is offending you, tear that thing out. It's better for you to not be in a fence than to allow that offense to cause your whole body and soul to go to hell. Oh, man, it gets worse. Show the next one. Who said it? Bot flies. Those are bot fly larvae. And I'm telling you, I'm showing you some clean images. There are some that are a whole lot worse than that. Listen, when we live in a fence family, Scripture says it's like these worms that are in us spiritually eating us alive that we can't get rid of. Show the next one. Those are roundworms from someone's major intestine, their large intestine, living in that person. When we live in the spirit of offense, it's like having these worms, these spiritual worms on the inside, eating us alive, consuming us, taking every single bit of our spirituality out of us. Are you listening to me? Jesus says it's better to not live in the offense than to live in that offense and allow that thing to cause you to be in a living hell here and then die and go to hell. I know this is hard, man. I know it's hard. But I'm your pastor. I got to tell you the truth. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Tear it out. Do something drastic. Stop reading stuff that causes you to be offended. Hmm. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Stop running into situations that give you an opportunity to be offended. Hmm. See, with, just like with these images, some of these images were ingested through the water. It got into people, and once it was in there, it wreaked havoc. I was talking to Junior yesterday, man. He got bit by a mosquito. And, and because the virus that that mosquito was carrying got under his skin, it wreaked havoc on his body. Satan doesn't care what he uses to get inside of you or to get under your skin. He doesn't care. Just be careful to guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it flows the issues of life.
I want to close with these five questions. Was this sobering? Yeah, they can come back in. Man, the Lord, the Lord was working on me this week as I worked through this text. I want to leave you with five questions today. The first three deal with pride. Some of you might have an issue with pride. Can you genuinely celebrate the accomplishments and the recognition of others? Genuinely celebrate without feeling some kind of way about it? Do you have to be affirmed and recognized for what you do and give? Is it necessary for you to get the credit up front? Do you truly value the importance of the mission or task more than you do your own contribution to it? Hmm. Are you looking for a platform to use your gifts and talents or do what, what you want to use your gifts and talents? Let me read that again. Is that one up there, by the way? Okay. Are you looking for a platform to use your gifts and talents or do you want to use your gifts and talents to serve others? And here's the final one. And this deals with offense. Is there someone that makes you anxious or angry when you think about them? The Lord had to, the Lord had to work on my heart about this. Because there was a person that had wronged me. And every time I thought about this person in Jesus' name, because I'm the pastor and I'm concerned about the congregation, there's something that would well up on the inside of me. And no, man, the Holy Spirit put me in check and said, no, that anger that you feel, that anxiousness that you feel is a spirit of offense. You need to give that to me. Is there someone in your life that makes you feel that way? Just stand to your feet. You've heard me say this a couple times as we walk through the book of Mark that, you know, that there are some passages that you'd prefer not to deal with because as a pastor, I'm always wanting to, to leave you uplifted. But I think God set the table for us today earlier when we prayed together, because I believe that God wants to set us free. He wants us to enjoy the richness that's available to us as citizens of his kingdom, as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, he, or of God and heirs and joint heirs of Jesus Christ. He wants us to be able to enjoy everything that he has for us. But there are some things that we have to do if we want to enjoy it. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to ask you a couple questions. I'd like the prayer team to just, just be on alert, be watchful. Maybe you're here and today, something about having childlike humility or being careful of how we treat others, or guarding our heart against the spirit of offense, touched you, 
resonated with you. And you're saying, you know what, I, I, I've tried to handle this thing alone and, and I don't want to do that anymore. I know where two or more can agree on earth as touching anything they ask will be done by the Father in heaven. And so today, I want to agree with a brother or a sister in prayer as I surrender this thing to God and to the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. If that's you, slip your hand up. I see several hands. I see several hands. You can put your hand down. Thank you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for you. Maybe you're here and for the first time you realize, hey, you know what, I'm, I've, I've not surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and today's my day. I want to wholeheartedly, totally surrender to the Lordship of Jesus in my life. Scripture says, the day that you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Now's the time. There will never be a better time to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. If that's you today and you want to take that challenge and embrace what it means to be part of the family of God, we love to be the first to welcome you to the body of Christ.